0: You excuse me now. I have to go drink a whole bunch of brandy. <laughs>
1: hey, this isn't rational security, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> though it's totally like the wannabe rational security. This
0: is kind of a wannabe rational security. You know what? You know what? We're our own thing. We're not. We're, we're not a wannabe anyone. Okay, we are our own thing.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. On this show, we're bringing together several young scholars to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are the usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Hello. Kirk Gunner. Hi. And Brandon Kenny. Howdy. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. And don't forget to view our latest post about the Russia investigation and everything that goes along with it. So this week we're going to talk about the issue of foreign fighters returning from ISIS-held or formerly ISIS-held areas. I guess the big question now is should nations leave them there, bring them back, or find a third option? And our other topic will be nuclear weapons. Do they make the world a safer place? So, who wants to begin with foreign fighters?
2: I was going to say, uh, one interesting thing that's been happening uh, that I've kind of noticed is that um, this whole, the, the uh, constant influx of foreign groups coming around um, leads to this kind of blame game situation where you see in Turkish media um, that's very closely aligned with the state, accusing U.S. Special Envoy McGurk of of literally leading uh, and ordering the deaths of 50,000 Syrian civilians, of, you know, helping the Kurds attack Turks, just like nonsense, basically. Um, And what's interesting is that it's very, it's personal. It's like, it's not, well, the United States coalition is doing this. It's, it's no, McGurk did this. And that guy's the worst. We got to do something about it. Um, And so I'm interested to hear what you guys think about, I guess, the, um, the drift in, in Turkey's media and, and foreign policy relations, uh, and also perhaps like the kind of weird consequences of having all of these foreign actors involved in this conflict where you know it's almost impossible to tell who is aligned with who and who is fighting who.
0: It's a really hard question to kind of even address, because there are so many, absolutely so many different groups. I remember early on in the conflict... The American media talking about the rebels versus Assad, and if you were following some of the forum fighters on Twitter, because at that point they weren't banned yet, they were talking about how, you know, at some point they're going to have to say the rebels attacked the rebels who attacked Assad, who attacked the rebels who attacked the rebels who attacked the rebels, and every single mention of rebels was going to be a different group. Because we just have this mentality where we need to simplify everything and can't actually I don't know, look at the true meaning of what anything is. And that makes any sort of foreign fighters coming back incredibly difficult to address. Is someone coming back from the Islamic front as bad as someone who's coming back from ISIS? When these people come back as refugees through different countries, like say Turkey, obviously we see a huge as Kurt was saying, a huge change in the foreign policy of uh, Turkey, just trying to get these out. And I'm pretty sure one of our friends said that the actual aid that was supposed to be raised for the refugees of Turkey has only been 30% raised. So it's not like we're trying to do anything to help these anyway. And I don't know if anyone here trusts Turkey to follow up on their claims that they're going to be helping with the
2: refugee crisis. That is one thing that um, Turkey has done pretty well uh, in the past. I think that lately it's it's just been kind of, it's hard to house 2 million plus Foreigners who speak a slightly different language in your nation, especially when many of them are also potentially connected to terrorist groups. The problem when I say potentially, of course, we know the truth is, you know, uh, this basically infinitesimal amount. But I do know also we have heard reports that like you know ISIS was actively trying to disguise its its fighters as refugees. And so whereas that fear in the United States or Germany is overblown. Uh, in turkey or saudi arabia it, it might actually have a, a kernel of truth to it who is left to step up and, and address that if i don't know that president clinton has has ever you know espoused a policy on this or had one of her famous white papers about it um but it seems pretty obvious the trump administration is not going to do anything to to help you know uh, these refugees in this scenario i'm looking at this like live map of syria um, and so it shows the borders kind of and the groups you know
1: oh that's that's really handy
2: it's handy but it's like you know uh, how accurate is it? i don't know
1: uh, so i guess one way to kind of guide this discussion is what would the case be for bringing those foreign fighters obviously vetting them first but bringing them back to their countries of origin
0: you know and i'm actually a i don't know what i want to say if i, I want to say fan but i'm a proponent of what france is doing and i'm It's getting a lot of negative PR for it, but it is going out actively killing the foreign fighters which come from France out in the field. So, I mean, you can say what you want about a soldier out in the field, an enemy soldier, if he's out in the field and he's going to, you know he's going to surrender at a point down the line. Is it humane to kill him now? I think the answer would be yes. Other people will say it's not because he's going to surrender eventually. But a lot of these people that are going to be making a problem for France, are being actively targeted and actively taken down by the French special forces. I know that uh, one of my friends, uh, Tommy, has looked at this question through the lens of Italy, and what they're actually doing is, if the foreign fighter surrenders, comes back to their country of origin, which would obviously be Italy in this case, gives up all foreign contacts, and basically renounces wherever they came from, the group that they came from, to get one third the jail time i'm a little wary about that approach because it's going to be one of those things where is that really punishing someone for going abroad and raping yazidis is that really punishing someone from going abroad and beheading if a sunni that you don't think is sunni enough or a shia because they're a heretic i'm not completely certain
1: one of the problems i see with that is if we're sending them to jail isn't that where so many people are becoming radicalized in the first place So wouldn't that possibly contribute to more radicalization? You know, say they decide, oh, yeah, I'm going to give up this whole life after seeing the brutality of groups like ISIS and things like that. But then they go to jail and end up seeing that there's even a different path that's still radical, but not quite ISIS level radical, that they then choose to follow instead. Because if they're radicalized once, the theory goes they could be radicalized again. Does anyone think they're going to actually turn themselves in?
0: A lot of them have been wanting to come back. I mean, there's a lot of mythology around ISIS. So you have a lot of people going, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to ISIS. It's going to be a great old time. We're going to have a whatever on the beach. And everyone's just going to be happy. And it's going to be the caliphate. And we're going to be great. And then they go over there and they realize that, hey, ISIS is the shit show of the world. And ISIS is literally the worst thing in the world that exists right now. And so they go, oh, crap. I was
2: wrong hey germany you want to take me back isn't there that there was that guy um piss pig granddad or whatever that like weird leftist american dude who like went to go fight with the rebels in syria
1: with the Guess ypg
2: yeah or is it with the kurds i don't the remember we fought okay i honestly don't, I don't remember what we was fought with <laughs> it's just like he's over there doing something but that's a
0: good question in and of itself. I mean, if someone goes to fight with the Kurds instead of fighting with ISIS, they're still a foreign combatant. They're still doing something which I'm pretty sure is strictly forbade by
2: U.S. law.
1: They're still probably pretty radical, one would imagine.
2: And this is where my my knowledge of, of uh, law here is very limited. You know, I don't understand how that's different um, than, like, the Americans who had to fight with the French, the Free French or whatever, or before America entered the war. One or two, um, and it's not. I'm not equating the two because they're very, very different. I just don't know legally how that works. You know, like is is, is that the sort of thing where some lawyers like, well, because it's this situation, like it doesn't it doesn't match up. Oh, okay, obviously. But um,
1: historically, we've celebrated that kind of thing with uh, it, also the Spanish Civil War. Um, those those people who went over and volunteered to fight. Uh, Against Franco have been celebrated in in novels and in history.
2: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and so that's that's where it gets tricky, right? Because it's it's how do we uh do we get to define in the current moment who who is doing the thing or or no?
1: I'd say isn't that what we're already doing? I, I we're mean... basically saying, I mean, if you go and you fight for ISIS, you're bad. If you fight for some of the rebel groups, you might be okay. And if you fight for the Kurds, you're good.
2: Yeah. Well, and then that's U.S. perspective, right? And then the yeah. Turks are like, well, fighting for the Kurds is basically fighting for ISIS. And, you know, fighting for Assad was bad, and now I guess it's a more okay? I don't even know anymore. It's like a hall of mirrors, basically.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm wondering about. If someone goes and fights for the Islamic Front, which, I mean, you hear the word, hey, the name Islamic Front, you go, oh, they've got to be ISIS. And you look at them, you're like, oh, they're actually really not ISIS. They're not at all ISIS. And when you get back what happens
1: but then again if you don't bring them back and you leave them there could we not also run into the situation that we had with say osama bin laden where he went to go and fight in afghanistan and then he you know the job was basically done he asked saudi arabia can i come back and saudi said no we don't want you to come back and then turned around and you know pointed his guns at saudi arabia
0: which again is why i advocate the french method of just going out and uh Using special forces to specifically target foreign fighters which come from your country, I would say that you can justify this morally because they are your responsibility. They are your citizen, and they are the ones out there killing whoever. From
1: but can you justify it if morally if they're you know they're going to surrender?
0: I think you can because before the end of World War Two, if everyone I, the best known examples you knew the Germans were going to surrender at some point. The Reds were crushing in from the uh, east. We were crushing in from the west, but we knew where they were going to surrender at some point. There was no way they could hold out, but we pushed against the Germans as hard as we possibly could so that the Russians would have less space in Germany eventually. So it was all geopolitical, I guess, machinations. And in the end, you're still fighting a a combatant, someone who is avowedly against you, even if they haven't surrendered yet, and even if they might surrender later. Might is not a word that you ha- use in warfare.
1: So I suppose the French are doing this before someone actually tries to contact the French government and say, I would like to surrender, please don't try to kill me, right?
0: I I, I believe so. I guess I don't know that far into it. Um, my knowledge okay, cause is really... because it
1: would seem pretty sketchy if they really are like oh, this person contacted us and wanted to surrender. Let's go kill him first.
0: See, and yeah, that's, I, I wonder how that kind of works out, because obviously there's going to be a lot of reluctant people in the Islamic State who aren't allowed to leave the borders. I mean, you have a lot of foreign fighters who say, if I could leave, I would leave, but I can't leave because I'm going to be beheaded if I try. And how do they contact the people to get them out, How, etc., etc.? I mean, you could say they might try to use Twitter like they've been using to communicate, but if someone finds out who they are, they're dead. So it's, it's a very gray area, but I think just the act of joining some of these insurgent groups, and you need to get to the arbitrary definitions of each government's classification of terrorist, if they join those groups, they are, for all sakes and purposes, a terrorist until they recant. And if they are killed before they are given the chance to recant, even though they would possibly have wanted to recant, that is not a good enough reason not to actively target them.
1: Yeah, I suppose we would just need more clarification on that French method if indeed they are, you know, targeting people before they surrender versus if they're targeting them after they surrender or when they're in the process of surrendering. But even then, if they do surrender, you know, what is the case for bringing them back to the home country? Because that does present a certain liability, but it could also present a certain benefit of you know, this person could then be an advocate for, well, I guess an advocate against these groups that want to continue to recruit. They could be used to help that counter recruitment movement.
0: That's assuming that they're already not radicalized Salafis just because radicalized Salafi doesn't want to specifically be in the Islamic State. Maybe he saw something in the Islamic State he didn't particularly care for, but he's still radicalized. So, I mean you're going to get a couple of those ones that honestly look at it and go, whoa, the Western way of life was much better than this. I'm going to go flip 100% back to the Western way of life. But I think you're going to get a lot more of those people that just go, no, this is not the caliphate that I told it was. And I will wait for something else.
1: Glad we got that solved, guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and that's why it's such a hard thing for any government to do. I mean, technically everything was wrong, right?
1: Mm-hmm well, we don't have established norms and rules yet. We're still, you know, all the norms and rules that we had were set up for conventional World War II-style conflicts. We don't know exactly what to do or how to handle it when you have one individual person who is acting as their own army, essentially, and everyone just acts via terrorism now.
2: Which is interesting, too, because that kind of leads itself to the question of military reform and, and how what kind of weapons we can and should use in combat, because... You know, how do you combat these individual individual actors, and do you need to have a a large standing army or, you know, small batches of special forces to dispatch immediately to to global locations? I don't know. It makes me think of that Tom Clancy novel Rainbow Six, you know, where they tried to address it with, like, six elite foreigners and a couple <laughs> American guys, and they... I think they were fighting against environmental extremists, environmental terrorists, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, we should call Tom Clancy and see what he wants to do about this. Well, you could try, but he's dead. <laughs> okay, we should call Tom Clancy's <laughs> wife. But... <laughs> we should I get out the Ouija board, guys. Perform a
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's also
0: a, that's a good question too, because uh, the last administration, the Obama administration, was very high on selective targeting, and just like what you were saying, transitioning from a military where we were a standard conventional force to fight conventional wars back to a military which was or i shouldn't say back to a military which was kind of unprecedentedly completely special forces and a lot of the generals a lot of the i guess thinkers of military command really didn't like that idea because while there are a lot of threats out there and there will be now ever-present threats where they are, like what Kurt said, they are some random dude taking up arms for some cause and causes will always have those sorts of people. The biggest threat in the world is still nation-to-nation warfare. It is not the guy with a Kalashnikov. The guy with the Kalashnikov is going to cause a lot of harm and a lot of casualties, but he's not going to cause world-changing events, per se. Uh, you look at ISIS, and although everyone thought oh, ISIS is some existential threat that is to the world, it's going to completely, Islam will destroy the world because of ISIS, yada, yada, yada. No, the much bigger concern in the fight against ISIS is how Russia extends its influence into Syria, how Russia uses its conventional military to stamp out opposition.
2: Well, and I guess it's location, right? You know, North Korea... Is an existential threat for South Korea and Japan and you know even parts of China, right? But for us, it's like, oh, this guy, lol, what a, what a nerd, well, you know? And it th- might be
1: an existential threat for us now,
2: right? Well, that's the thing is that I think um, there there were a lot of jokes about how Obama created this uh, this really thoughtful system based on this kind of philosopher king executive branch where a you know enlightened despot would. And I say that as someone who's a big fan of Obama, but, you know, he's expanded the executive branch quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and then, all of a sudden, our next person is, you know, a grade-A moron who doesn't have the delicacy or the, or the knowledge <laughs> necessary to kind of handle this this machine he's been given. Uh, and so the delicate balance he struck internationally didn't last because it wasn't built on, on uh, you know, the different checks and balances. It was built on the strong executive branch. And all of a sudden that's gone you know we're we're flouting the iran deal right now and it's like uh well what's what's going to happen when you know uh, uh the international community looks at that and goes you can't break a deal and then get mad at them and then trump says you sure i can't well i just did and then you know all hell breaks loose
1: he's he, he wrote the art of the deal yeah is a was bad a, deal come a, on a, guys
2: <laughs> wait that was trump hold on a minute <laughs>
1: Side note: I actually, um, <laughs> when I was in Vietnam, I actually saw them selling *The Art of the Deal* in Vietnamese. That's unfortunate. Oh. At the and I'm I'm not even kidding. This was at the Reunification Palace in Ho Chi Minh City.
0: <laughs> Very unfortunate.
1: Alright, should we talk about nuclear weapons?
0: Well, yeah. Talk is speaking of why conventional armies are still needed and inner, inner country warfare is still the biggest thing. <laughs> nuclear
1: weapons. <laughs> so, nuclear weapons. Good thing or bad thing? Well, I think uh, we yeah. don't think they're a bad thing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's the uh, bad thing, but should we have them versus. Uh, you know bad thing and we should not have them is that is that right
0: I, I think that would be probably the most correct yeah
1: basically are they evil or a necessary evil
0: yeah i mean i think they're a necessary evil personally they're like the gun once you invent the gun the gun's going to kill a lot of people but you can't uninvent the gun you can't uninvent a nuclear weapon you can't Undiscover the splitting of the atom. You can't undiscover E equals MC squared, etc., etc. And so if oh, sorry,
2: I was just gonna throw out there because I, I mean I think you're right about a lot of this. But when you say when you say gun, you can't uninvent it. Uh, one way to look at this is kind of like the NSA recently building all these really cool, neat, fun hacking tools, which then got leaked, uh, and then they like then you know hackers were able to completely put. Uh, the Spanish healthcare system and, and British healthcare system, like in a headlock for a couple of days. You know, people died because of that sort of thing. And the question, rightly, was like, why are you building this stuff, NSA? Uh, if there's a chance that you could get stolen and used against innocent people, couldn't you not extend that argument towards? Well, should we not just dismantle all the nukes we can get our hands on and just go from there? You know, and if if someone decides to use a weapon against us, just all right, well, we're going to blow everything up. Blow all your crap up with regular missiles, and regular people will still die. It's just not with the cataclysmic thing we all know and love.
1: We can't uninvent the gun, as you said, but we can make it obsolete, can't we? We don't want to make
0: nuclear weapons obsolete. The only way you make nuclear weapons obsolete is by building something more powerful than nuclear weapons, and I think we can all agree that that is a bad idea.
1: Or we make them obsolete in the sense of there would be no need or reason to use them anymore. Though of course I can't think of a scenario where that would actually happen. One
0: world government,
1: <laughs> and that's I think uh, the
0: two def- the two big factors here are the anarchy and political and in international relations. You don't have a super uh, structure of international relations as much as the United Nations wants to be it. You have sovereignty between every single individual country, all two hundred and how many of them. And so, yes, while the United States might be able to say. We're going to dismantle every single nuclear weapon we can possibly get our hands of. China is going to look at that and go, yeah, but we're not going to. And that leads to a proportionality problem where George Kennan talked about it. And I know a lot of people absolutely hate him, but I think that he still has some wisdom. Henry Kissinger also talked about it. You need a proportionality of nuclear weapons so that you can make nuclear wars for all intents and purposes unwinnable. You don't want a country to look at a nuclear weapon and go, I can use a nuclear weapon because I know the war will be winnable because that will make them tactical nuclear weapons. You can hand them to generals in the field and say, if you need to use this, go ahead and use this. Right now, they're strategic weapons because, let's be honest, you use a nuclear weapon in today's age, you're probably going to end the world. And there are very few people in the world that want the world to end.
1: It's a very... uh realist interpretation because it hinges upon of course everyone is a rational actor which so far we've been lucky and that's the case but that can't be guaranteed throughout all of time
2: well and i mean when you're looking at the nuclear weapons nuclear stockpiles here um it's it to me it's like okay we're talking about two countries really we're talking about russia and the united states um in that both have thousands of nukes and everyone else has like a uh, exponentially lower number um and so you don't have to say necessarily that united states is going to disarm everything and then that'll just be it but you can say hey look we have you know uh, this huge pile of weapons russia does too we're going to lead the way by having some sort of bilateral agreement between the two of them luckily uh trump actually he has people in there he can talk to he knows some people in that whole government he can just (laughs) give a call so it's not too bad just call call putin up and be like hey what's up buddy um And you just do kind of like a a joint deal, and you, uh, to use the teaching phrase, you model good behavior, right? We're going to work on this, and if you're talking about uh, um, China, right? Well, yeah, I don't know why China would disarm right now, considering the United States and Russia has, like, thousands more weapons than they do. But if those numbers start to go down, then all of a sudden it becomes, well, okay, yeah, that's that's not so bad, you know? And we're talking about 90% of the weapons in, in the whole world. I sent that stockpile report to you guys in the chat, um, are owned by by Russia and the United States. So it really has to be us first. We can't wait left for someone else to lead on this. And we know Putin's not going to lead on this. Uh, and then kind of hope that trickles down to other countries. Um, I, it, it's not a, a short-term solution. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But I think it needs to start soon.
0: And the problem that I would have with that is the... No one's afraid of North Korea. People are afraid of North Korea having one nuclear weapon. Yes, that is right. But people are more afraid of North Korea having 50 nuclear weapons because it makes them hard to target. The problem with reducing the nuclear arsenals isn't so much that, yeah, we can destroy the world probably a hundred times over the United States by itself. And that report itself is a little misleading because the effectivity of the United States nuclear weapons are just above and beyond what Russia could ever compare. So if we were to actually compare nuclear power in that little chart that you had sent out, the United States would be above and beyond everybody else by wide, wide, wide margins. But the power of a nuclear weapon is still incredibly devastating, and the power of smart missiles now and smart weapons is growing and growing, meaning that you can effectively, if someone has only, uh, I see on this, Israel has estimated 80 nuclear weapons. Pakistan has 130 nuclear weapons. And if you can effectively target those nuclear weapons, then you can eradicate their nuclear stock, and again, a nuclear war becomes winnable. So the reason why the United States and Russia had so many nuclear weapons wasn't particularly so that they could destroy the world 80 times over. There's no point in that. But it was to make a nuclear war unwinnable by any means. So the United States could to every effect that we possibly could target every single one of Russia's nuclear weapons, but that's 70, 000, or 7,000 nuclear weapons. We're not going to hit them all, which means the nuclear war we might, dis- <laughs> we might stop them from destroying the world over seven times but they could still destroy it one more time.
1: Yeah, and basically that is the fundamentals of second strike capability.
0: Is second strike capability the type of, like, the second course of a meal or something? I, Trump's got a <laughs> I I was listening to him on, like, the nuclear triad, and that has something else to do with I don't know what, but I mean, nuclear weapons, man, nuclear weapons.
1: My thought is, this entire conversation, and basically every conversation about nuclear weapons, hinges on this sort of binary of, we either don't use them, or we use literally everything. But has anyone given thought to incrementalism of nuclear weapons? So say, something happens to the point where somebody decides to launch a nuclear weapon would the response always be that the other side would launch everything that they have? Or would it be that they would essentially respond in kind that it wouldn't necessarily increase and escalate. It would just be kind of a one for one matching.
0: My reading of the U S foreign policy on the, or I guess the U S defense policy on this comes from, uh, started in the Eisenhower administration, which was overwhelming response. So, yeah, they shoot off one nuclear weapon, and we shoot off literally every single one of our nuclear weapons that we have pointed at them, at them. And you make it so that, yeah, you want to pinch us? We are going to wreck you. And I, say what you will about that, but I think that is our strategies currently.
1: I think that is the strategy currently, but... And, of course, this would depend entirely upon the person who is present at the time, but would that person in the face of it basically look at that and go, well, they launched one. I could either respond in kind with one or I could basically create a series of events that will definitely lead to the end of all life on Earth. I think in that case, someone might decide, well, I'm going to just incrementalize this and see if it doesn't escalate further. Because at the end of the day, you know, if it continues to escalate, eventually it'll reach that point anyway. But someone could take a look at that situation and go, I will respond in kind and maybe not end the world as opposed to definitely ending the world.
2: This just all seems very cold war mentality to me. <laughs> um, this seems very like two superpowers and we're on the brink of destruction. And I mean, I think if you look back at a lot of those policies, um, they were terrible, not just because they risked the lives of people around the world, but because they, they honestly assumed this kind of hostile intention. Um, and I think, the only way out of this is to is to kind of shake our way free of these, of these kind of uh, modes of thinking. And instead of, like, okay, you nuke us and destroy our nuclear capability, now you've dominated us. It's like, well, okay, but we also have a bunch of your economy intertwined with our economy, so what are you going to do about that? Like, you blew up our city, so now we're not going to trade with you, and now you have a food shortage? Like, I think the world is very different than it was back then, and I think, you know... Um, while North Korea does present a, a terrifying threat, it's not because their traditional power with weapons. It's because they're non-traditional power. It's because they're they have an, an unbalanced leader, something that we understand quite a bit over here now, um, especially since we were faced. But we he replaced someone who, criticize him all you want, was extremely balanced, you know. And so now, um, the question to me shouldn't be uh, uh, what what should be United States' plan with with weapons on the road. It should just be you know how does North Korea represent. A break from what everyone else is doing, and should we just carry on with, you know, inventing our own ways to solve this nuclear crisis, um, without attempting to like negotiate with North Korea on this because they're probably not going to, right? That's the only way that um, that Kim Jong Un can reign in power is, is by projecting his strength internationally. So, I don't know. All this, all this eradication, total war stuff, just gives, gives me Cold War flashbacks, and it it feels outdated.
1: So, are you saying that? perhaps as I was suggesting earlier we have made it obsolete
2: yeah I th- that, I mean uh, yeah I think that's sure the...
1: I mean you you won't necessarily we're not thinking in terms of everyone is going to die but it's more of well if I nuke this country it's gonna really suck for me anyway whether I get hit or not
2: yeah I, I think that's I think that word um, obsolete and I think that's what Stephen was responding to was well generally we use it in the terms of there must be something something better but in this case it's more like uh, you know, it's it's obsolete. It's archaic. It's it's from an older age, right? It doesn't, doesn't apply to the current global economy that we have and the global relations that we have. Just because, yeah, I mean, not that trade embargoes are are all powerful, but uh, I think it it that would have to be a factor in someone using a nuke now when it might not have been as strong of a factor in in the '70s or '80s.
1: Yeah, or that say, one army fighting against another army is essentially obsolete in some ways, because why do that when you could just have a bunch of no-named foreign fighters who are basically doing what you want them to do, but they aren't doing it under your flag. Or instead of completely taking over a country and installing a new government, you just, oh, I don't know, meddle in their election.
0: I see. I feel like we're getting to the trap where, because it hasn't happened again for a little while, we're thinking that it's not going to happen again because a major power a major war uh, between superpowers or great powers or midding powers even hasn't happened for such a long time well it's never going to happen again standing armies are useless nuclear weapons no one's ever going to use them anyways because of all the possibilities with them so we should get rid of them but the problem with that is and i know this is a very real uh, realist way of looking at it and i say realist and obviously not the realistic but realist uh, philosophy, sort of, uh, international relations, you can't ever really determine what another country is going to do. And until we have some superstructure, somebody up on high, which would be willing to deliver out the payment or the pain of if someone abrogates from their deals, their whatever they've committed to, you can't ever count on anyone completely being sane. I, I think this is a perfect example in the United States. I think a lot of people looked at the United States as a a bulwark of, hey, they committed to it. They they probably will, you know, try to live up to their expectations. Even during the Bush administration, they probably will try at least to live up to their expectations of international law. And then you get to the point where you have a even a democracy which is supposed to be the most stable form of government it's always supposed to be moderating and now we have someone who advocates for japan to have the nuclear weapons for south korea to have nuclear weapons obviously he walked back that statement after his advisors went up and said what the fuck are you doing but you still have democracies which are going off the deep end and in that sort of scenario you can't assume that any country is going to be stable for a long time if Nirvana Modi of India had been as bad as everyone thought he was going to be the nationalist leader that he thought everyone thought he was going to be, Pakistan would be imperiled. <laughs> if the British government had been a little bit more effective, if they if they weren't completely incompetent, you know what, then the United Nations, might, or United Nations, the European Union might be looking at that and going, shoot, maybe we have to really reconsider a whole bunch of stuff, not militarily maybe, but we do have to reconsider if in the united states we have a who i believe an incompetent president right now and everyone has to look at this and go are the security guarantees that the united states provides to vietnam to bangladesh to any of those countries are those actually something we can count on anymore and if not what are we going to use When, especially in the South China Sea, what are we going to use to balance it when a country who believes they are the rightful regional hegemon comes to bat us down? Are we going to elect a a person like uh, Duarte in the Philippines? I just don't think you can really look at any country on earth and guarantee 100% that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, they aren't going to be completely flipped. And because you can't guarantee that, because you can't guarantee that everyone will always be friends with you and that they will never be enemies with you, you always have to carry that sword, that sharp edge. And when it refers to the nuclear weapons debate, you can't guarantee that Putin is going to want to get rid of his nuclear arsenal. You can't guarantee that Xi Jinping is going to look at it and go, yeah, you're right, nuclear weapons are a stupid idea, and they have always been a stupid idea, like I believe they have.
1: Oh, yeah, you totally you totally keep them. It's just, you know, you make it so that using them is, of course, basically unacceptable. Not just in the terms of everyone dying, which is the way that people traditionally think of it. But, but if you have in enough nuclear weapons to is... destroy the
0: world, then who, who cares if everyone thinks what you're doing is unacceptable? You are now the global hegemon.
1: But there are ways to combat it besides nuclear weapons. I mean, we've seen sanctions sort of working in Russia.
0: I don't really think they are working in Russia and you could say that the only successful case of sanctions being used was against Iran and you ha- the Bush administration and the Obama administration had to go incredibly far in depth and alienate a whole bunch of countries to get those sanctions to where they were to work you can't do that in North Korea because they have China who doesn't care well, they care, but they don't really care. And what if another country with a superpower backer or someone with nuclear weapons backing them, for some reason Bhutan decides to go off the deep end and just build a whole bunch of nuclear weapons and become the regional hegemon, and India's like, yeah, go
2: for it, man, we'll protect you. What, what then? This all just seems like we're assuming, we're assuming the worst, and so because we're assuming the worst, we can't, we can't lead. And because we're assuming the worst, we must assume that we need to lead, if that makes sense. Like, on the one hand, we can't lead by disarming, because if we do, that shows weakness. On the other hand, we can't trust people to handle their own business, because they might attack us, and so we must be the ones in charge. Uh, This just seems like a weirdly circuitous and and oddly self-defeating logic, you know. And and um, I think a lot of that is is built off of, you know, rational, realpolitik-type stuff but i don't know that we're necessarily beyond that i do know that we need to move beyond that if we want to officially you know actually move forward um it just it just seems like but we the keep saying is how
0: do you move beyond it though
2: i think you just have to start i think you just have to start you have to make a deal with another one of the major empires either either china or russia most likely um and say okay we're going to start disarming let's do it and then get people on board from there because if you look at it like well they're going to take going to take advantage of us well, that'll they'll always be true. There will always be other nations who will try and take advantage of your weakness. Um, but unless you, you make an attempt at it, it'll, it'll never get done. Um, and we'll just be stuck in the cycle forever where uh, we sit here and decide uh, who, who, what, what nations we think are doing well, what nations we think are doing bad, which ones are getting close to nukes, which ones are not. Should we sanction you know, Iran because they're getting close to this nuclear thing? Uh, it just seems like a, like a circular, uh, never-ending spiral
0: to some extent I would agree with you but I mean then you look at the case of Ukraine and I mean the reason why Ukraine disarmed was because they had guarantees from the United States, from Great Britain, from France and from Russia that if they got rid of their nuclear weapons they would never be encroached upon. That happened 20 years was it? was it 20 years ago? About 20 years ago in the 90s and you can't guarantee what was going to happen later on so yeah you can guarantee that at the time everyone had the best interest in upholding that but you can't guarantee that someone with an unstable men- mind is going to come to the leadership. So yeah, you are right that I it is assuming the worst. But to some extent, you always have to prepare for the worst while hoping for the best. I mean, that's a really hackneyed and used phrase, obviously.
1: But can we say that nuclear weapons make the world safer? In a very ironic and almost self-defeating kind of way?
0: I do think they do. I mean, they make a lot of wars completely... <laughs> if nuclear weapons hadn't been a thing, I mean, the United States and Russia probably would have gone to war, and I believe probably the United States would have won it, but there would have been millions of people dead on each side, and that never but happened. Is,
1: wouldn't that have been deterrence enough, though, to prevent those two powers from oh, going to war?
0: No way. No way. People don't... Uh, countries like that don't care about... It sounds... It is bad. Countries like that don't care really about... How many people die in the war? They care if they win the war.
2: But well, what do you what do you win at this point? You're not exchanging territory. You're not getting any money. The, the even the ideologies, you know, even the if we're looking at, I guess, communism, uh, pre Soviet Union breaking up, and capitalism, even those ideologies have been like twisted and warped to the degree that I don't know that I recognize either one. Um, obviously not in Russia, but like, can you say that Chinese China is communist? I don't think so at all. I don't really think that American capitalism uh, follows anything close to those ideologies that we were so excited about with the free markets and whatnot uh, back in the day. So I guess the question I'm asking is, you know, this, this go for broke do anything to win mentality uh, there's nothing left to win if everyone is trading with everyone and all the only way you win is through economic domination right? So nuclear weapons are obsolete in that sense and if we're going to keep them around, we're just asking for someone to steal one and use it on a civilian population, um, and that to me is is the scariest thing. Not that we're going to have two nations fighting, because beyond North Korea, I think most nations um, understand that they need some relations with their neighbors to survive in this in this global world. Um, but if someone were to, if a group of really excited terrorists were to break into Um, some nuclear facility in in Russia or China or or Pakistan or or North Korea and grab even an old a very old weapon that can still destroy most of not all of a major major city and so that's what we need to be worried about and by disarming them by taking that first step we're saying that that's that's a threat we're taking seriously versus waiting for this kind of um, invasion to happen and I, I know that um, you guys have been saying that, that uh, international conflict between two nations is still the most dangerous thing. I just don't see it. You know, beyond North Korea, I don't see um, the same kind of wars happening if we take these steps. You know, if we're aggressively pushing a uh, kind of nuclear disarmament treaty, uh, that I think will help uh, disable a lot of these arguments.
0: I think that just makes wars more winnable. At this point, if Iran has... I I don't believe Iran should get, but if Iran has 50 nuclear weapons, they can... uh, No one's going to ever declare war on them. No one's going to ever invade them. Because they do not have nuclear weapons, we have hawks in the administration right now who are going, let's do regime change. You have hawks in the Saudi administration. Let's do regime change. And a war against Iran is every single day, more and more feasible because they don't have the type of deterrence that they would need. And we look at it and we go, well, I mean, max 2,500 Americans will die. And what's the, what's the big deal? It'll make the world safer in the end. And that's what I get back to again, where a lot of these politicians, a lot of these leaders don't look at the number of people that will die. They look at, is the war winnable? Is the cost acceptable for what the outcome should be? And it's very noble to look at the world as how many people will die in a given war, but most people will not. Most people will look at it as is the number of deaths acceptable for the cause that will happen? And nuclear weapons make that amount of death unacceptable in any case. Conventional wars are acceptable in many more cases. I'm not going to say every case, but a lot more cases. But I do agree with you, Kurt. I really do agree with you that the biggest threat in the world with, in terms of nuclear weapons is not state-to-state warfare because specifically because it would be a world-ending event. And the biggest threat in the world is if Pakistan doesn't take care of their nuclear arsenal and it gets taken over by the Pakistani um, Taliban and used in Afghanistan. That is the biggest threat in the world.
2: It's so funny because... We talk about this this rational stuff. You know, both of us are talking about different levels of rationality, and yet it, this you know Donald Trump ran because he got made fun of in the White House Correspondence Dinner, you know, and yeah. uh, and then solidified his decision to leave the Paris Accord because Macron kind of squeezed his hand real hard, you know, and that's just one guy. And I I think that the unpleasant truth is that. A lot of people perhaps uh, have that mindset of, you know, it is, it is personal for a lot of these leaders, especially ones who've been in power for quite some time. You know, Erdogan, uh, you know, the kind of the Saudi regime, like the, these are, these are personal relationships between, between leaders. And if they're snubbed, uh, that's, that can lead to conflict. That's never a good thing. And so I think it just heightens to me how fragile everything is and how, how easy it can be to, to piss off the wrong person or the wrong person's son, you know, and then all of a sudden we're, we're not firing nukes necessarily, but like, we're starting an embargo process that might lead to a standoff, that might lead to something else. And it's like, that's what happened in Syria and in the Middle East. And that's what could be happening in North Korea tomorrow. Um, Which, if we think back to like three episodes ago, when Trump promised that a a carrier group was heading over to South Korea to help defend it, and they weren't, it's like, you can't do that. You can't mess with that because now all of a sudden that whole region is now a little bit less stable. An entire nation now doesn't trust the American president when they say that he's going to come protect them. So that, that's terrifying for them, I'm sure. And that means they have to do their own thing. If they have to do their own thing, maybe they make a preemptive strike and all of a sudden we're, we're back to square one.
1: And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen, Kurt, and Brandon for their inside analysis and just general intelligence, as well as our listeners and readers of the block. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com and like and share on our Facebook group and you know all that social media jazz. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.